Today's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. It's Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that yourself are a a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray and get to work in Romans 2. Father, I love the Bible, and oh, I love Romans 2. This is, this is really a good section for my soul as a, as a man, as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. And today I pray that what, what you did in my heart in studying this text would come through and be clear and helpful for a congregation of people who I love, and I just want them to grow and know you, and to follow you all the days of their life. So would you come now and let this text be like food to hungry people today. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to hear from Jesus through Romans 2. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last four Sundays, we've been involved in some pretty heavy and dark content, looking at the really bleak backdrop against which the gospel is set. We have seen the way in which our righteousness avails nothing, and we need a righteousness that God can give us. And in Romans chapter 1 through verse 17, it was filled with hope that that the righteous will live by faith. And then it turns a really dark corner in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through really chapter 3 and verse 20. Let me just set the stage for what we've looked at so far. We've already looked at the tragedy of unbelief and its consequences. And then we connected that to the idea of warnings to spiritually minded people. Just prior to that, we, we, we talked about the tragic exchange of God's glory for our own. And we applied that in areas of sexuality and especially homosexuality. And then last week we talked about the impartiality of God and that he deals with Jews and Gentiles the same. And whether you have the official law or just the 
normal, natural law of life, you know what's right and wrong, that God judges both. Where Paul is leading us is towards Romans 3.23, where eventually he will say, all have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. Some people express their depravity through utter godlessness, and then other people express their depravity with an appearance of spirituality, acting as though they're righteous, or as we'll see today, having status symbols of their spirituality. Now last week we saw the way in which Paul dismantled one particular status symbol that Jewish people would hold onto, which would be the law. And we saw the way in which he dismantled that by showing that if you don't keep the law, then you're going to be judged by the law. Even if you're a Gentile or a Jew, God is going to be impartial in his judgment. And even if Gentiles don't have the law, but they obey and they know what's right and wrong, that they keep a law, it's a law really to themselves. And so what Paul is doing is dismantling this, this notion that Jews might have that somehow they're, they're better because they're God's chosen people or God's not going to, 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 to judge them. Now the second thing that God is going to help us to see in this chapter is the way in which the spiritual status symbol of circumcision is also dismantled. So it's one thing for a Jew to trust in the law. It's another for him to trust in circumcision. And what we're going to see is this, and this is the thesis for today. It is that spiritual status symbols do not equal true spirituality. So spiritual status symbols do not equal true spirituality. I want to suggest to you that whether it's Jewishness or whether it's 21st century Christianity at College Park Church, human beings tend towards establishing their spirituality on status symbols. And I want to show you why that is so misguided and dangerous. And so what Paul's going to do is first address the issue of the Jewish misguided confidence in their past. He's then going to show us the consequences of that. And then third, he's going to address what true circumcision is. And then finally, going to draw some conclusions. And those conclusions very much relate to our lives. So here's the first thing. We have Paul addressing this misguided confidence that the Jewish people had. Verse 17 says, But if you call yourself a Jew, and certainly they did, Paul then is going to address ten things that are all true about the Jewish people in terms of their special relationship with God. It's not that the things that he's going to list are inaccurate or arrogant. All of these things about the Jewish people were indeed true. In fact, they were God's special people. God had chosen them and had set his love on them. And throughout the Old Testament, he takes a a lot of time to explain the significance of his love relationship with them. For instance, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
So God set his love on the people of Israel, and he blessed them. And what Paul does is he, is he lists five blessings and then five things that Israel was called to do in terms of their mission. And he lists those ten things, and then what he does is he uses those ten things and he, he turns them from blessings to actually a statement of challenge or a statement of judgment on them. So they had misguided confidence. Let's see those first five blessings. Verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, here's the first one, and you rely on the law, that's number one, and it wasn't that they were relying on the law inappropriately. The law had been given to them, and it was a means of spiritual blessing. You rely on the law. Secondly, you boast in God. Jeremiah uh, chapter 9 tells us that we are to boast in God. So the boasting in God wasn't inappropriate. Third, you know his will. Call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God, verse 18, and know his will and approve what is excellent. So by knowing his will, Paul means here that Israel knew what God wanted them to do. He had given them the law. It identified the law, did who God was and what he desired. And the other nations of the world were not given this blessing. This was only given to Israel. And they approve what is excellent. God would help his people know what was the best way to live. So they relied on the law. They boasted in God. They knew his will. They approved what is excellent. And then the final thing, the fifth blessing that comes to them is that they were instructed from the law. Again, verse 18, because you are instructed from the law. This is really designed to be a a summary statement of the blessings that came from God's deliverance of his word, his law to them. It was a great mercy that God told him that he was not like them. It's a great mercy that God told them what was right and what was wrong. So those are the five blessings. And then we see five things that relate to Israel's mission Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, again, this was part of Israel's ministry. She was to be a guide to the blind in the same way that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind figuratively, spiritually, and literally as Jesus did. So Israel was supposed to be a guide to those who were not able to spiritually see. Secondly, they were to be a light to those in darkness. So the image is that Israel is supposed to be a city set on a hill, a light to the nations. God's purpose in calling Israel was not just for Israel. It was so that Israel would be a place that the nations would see the glory of God, would see the beauty of the law, and they would be attracted, and they would come to Jerusalem to be instructed in God's ways. Remember what Jesus said when he cleansed the temple? When he was so angry that the people had turned the temple into a place of commerce and not a place of worship. He said, my house will be a house of prayer for what? All nations. The idea is that nations would come and that Israel would be a light. You are sure, verse 19, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light for those who are in darkness. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children. There's number three and four. Instructor of the foolish was to be the ways in which Israel was going to instruct the world in the ways of the of, of the Lord. And a teacher of children, the word children and foolish are really synonymous terms. And the idea is that Israel was supposed to have this teacher sort of role for the world. And then finally there's a, a summary statement in verse 20 as the verse ends. 
having the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So the embodiment of knowledge and truth, God gives to Israel the law. So, what do we make of this list? These ten things. It's an excellent summary here of how a spiritually minded Jewish person would have seen him or herself in terms of the blessings that they had received and in terms of their mission in the world. So everything in this list is accurate. There's nothing, Paul's not getting on them because any of these things are not true. These are all true. But what he's doing is he's setting them up. Is they list these five things and they said, yeah, those are all true. And then five other things. Yeah, that's all true. And now there is going to come a setup for him to challenge them. It's sort of like when you're having a conversation with somebody and they're saying really nice things and you think, you know what? There's a butt coming here in just a minute, right? You go to pick up your kids from the Sunday school class and they're like, your kids are really special. And they're really, I'm sure they have really great hearts and you know, but, right? Happens to me sometimes after a service, you know, someone comes up, hey, that was a really good sermon. But, right, and I just, I just know that, you know, oftentimes that happens. I'm sure you've had that experience. And here's what happens with the people of Israel in Romans chapter 2. Paul goes through the great blessings and then says, however, and then he addresses significant consequences. Because what happens is that their lives didn't match with the blessings that they had received. Verse 21, you then, and the way it's even worded in the original language, it's designed to be a sharp turn. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? What Paul does now is he goes through four rhetorical questions. And you know rhetorical questions are not designed to be answered. They're designed to elicit guilt. They're designed to send a message. And the first question is really the theme of all of them. And the, the, the theme is this. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, you have all this knowledge, you have all of this law, but the fact of the matter is, are you really keeping that law? Are you really truly obeying? Or do you just have spiritual status symbols? Verse 21, he asks them another question, and these all relate to the Ten Commandments. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to one, must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Verse 22. Fourth rhetorical question, verse 23. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So with this idea of a failure to teach oneself and a failure to practice what one preaches, Paul is suggesting that the people of Israel were guilty of the very things that they preached against. Now, remember, Paul is making the case that all Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God, but he spends a lot more time talking to the Jewish people. Why? Here's why. Because, candidly, it is much harder to convince spiritually-minded, obedience-oriented, moralistic people that they are, in fact, truly guilty. Let me say that again. It is harder to convince spiritually-minded, obedience-focused, moralistic people that they are indeed guilty. Spiritual pride sets in. A sense of, wait a minute, I've I've done this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I'm not that bad. Paul is 
going after this, which is why verses 23 and 24 are both sharp and penetrating. Look at what he says, verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So the whole thing was they wanted to honor God, quote-unquote. What Paul says is by breaking the law, you dishonor God, even though you boast in the law. And then, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He even says, as it is written. And, and this, this relates to a statement that occurred in the book of Isaiah regarding the um, captivity of Israel, that because of her sin, God judged her by causing a, a foreign power to come and take her captive. And the result of her disobedience and this captivity is that the people around the world will look at these events and go, look, God's abandoned his people. They will, in effect, blaspheme the name of God because of Israel's disobedience that led to this captivity. And so now Paul uses this historically powerful metaphor and he brings it into this context and says, by your lack of true spirituality, you are, in effect, dishonoring God and causing the name of God to be blasphemed. It's really important for you to notice here that Israel, the Jewish people, are just as guilty of an exchange that the Gentiles were. The Gentiles exchanged the glory of God for an image like themselves, and so they said they were wise, but they actually became foolish. Israel exchanged the glory of God for their own version of spirituality. And so while they thought that they were spiritual, they were in fact not. They thought they were proclaiming the name of God when in fact they were actually causing the name of God to be blasphemed. In a couple of weeks we'll be in Romans 3. But look at verses 10, 11, and 12 in light of this context, in light of the, the thought of Jewish pride in light of the Jewish pride in understanding, and we're the ones who seek after God, then Paul says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Israel was supposed to be the place where people come for understanding. No one understands, not even you. No one seeks after God. They're supposed to be the place that people, all nations of the world come. And he says, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I hope you don't miss the significance of what's happening here. The very people who claimed to be special to God dishonored God by their lack of true spirituality and they caused the name of God to be blasphemed. Even though they weren't like the Gentiles, arguably they could be even considered worse. Because it's one thing when a Gentile acts like a Gentile. It's another when a spiritually minded person acts like a pagan. John Murray in his commentary says this, The tragic irony is apparent. The Jews who claimed to be the leaders of the nations for the worship of the true God had become the instruments of provoking the nations to blasphemy. In College Park, this is something we need to really listen to. Because I'm sure that you have heard it before where you invite someone to come to church and the person says the church is full of hypocrites. And in one respect, that's true because who among us isn't at some level hypocritical? But at another level, we also know people who have never 
or will never darken the door of a church because of somebody who was quote-unquote Christian, but who acted in a way that was so un-Christian that it turned the person off to all Christians forever. Stuart Briscoe tells the story of having to deal with a fellow employee who once embezzled a large sum of money from the bank with which they had both worked. When the man was apprehended and fired, writes Briscoe, he was... He stunned everyone by saying this. I'm very sorry for what I have done, and I need to know whether I should fulfill my preaching commitments on Sunday in our local church. Briscoe says that in the following weeks, he spent a great part of his time mending the damage done by the man's blatant inconsistency. He found that his fellow workers not only despised the man, but they were quick to dismiss the church he belonged to as a bunch of hypocrites quick to dismiss the gospel as a bunch of hogwash and to dismiss the God he claimed to serve as non-existent. Can I just issue you a pastoral caution and a warning? And that is you need to know that your conduct and your actions says a lot about the legitimacy of this church and all of us. And true spirituality isn't just, I go to church here. It is that you follow Jesus. So when you leave and go to work and you live the rest of your week this week, can you just be reminded, can I be reminded along with you that our lives and our actions can actually cause people to say, if that's what Christianity is like, I don't want anything to do with it. So true spirituality is not just whether you're in the room or whether you say that you believe certain things True spirituality, true spirituality is different. And spiritual hypocrisy has very significant consequences. Some of you are here, and this is sort of your second try at church. You're in what I've called the church recovery program. Somebody just did you wrong. Maybe you grew up in a home where you were like, yeah, my parents claimed to be Christians, but it didn't work. It didn't. And so for your most of your life, you, you've just been away, and this is like the first time that you've tried to be back. I, I'm glad you're here, and I hope that you'll find true spirituality in this body. The third thing that Paul addresses is the matter of true circumcision. So the law was one spiritual status symbol. The second one, an even greater one, is that of circumcision. It was the mark of God's sacred covenant with Abraham. In fact, circumcision was so important that a male was not considered a part of the covenant community until he was circumcised. He wasn't considered to be a true Israelite, and a person wasn't allowed in a public worship setting without this symbolic act having been completed. So it was a person's identification with the promise of Abraham, and it was part of both one's spiritual heritage and continuity from generation to generation. And so more than any other symbol, this idea of circumcision was the covenantal mark of the Jewish people. So much so that like in the book of Ephesians, when Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, he doesn't even use Jew and Gentile. He says circumcised and uncircumcised. He uses the symbol as a noun, to describe the people who are Jews or Gentiles. A symbol was that important. In Romans 2, 
verses 25 to 29, what Paul does is connect circumcision to that of obedience. Look at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, underneath this idea of circumcision is something even more important. That circumcision related to to promise keeping, it related to obedience and true spirituality. In the same way that last week we saw that underneath the law is a law, there's a law underneath that law. And in that way that if Gentiles keep the law without having the law, then they're really obedient. In the same way that obedience is what God is targeting, and that circumcision or not being circumcised is subservient to what it means to have true spirituality. Verse 26, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? I mean, that's a a really strong statement. If you're a Jew and all your life you've heard, this is the symbol that communicates I'm part of God's covenant community. Paul basically says, look, if somebody is obedient and they're not circumcised, God's going to count them as a part of his family. He's going to be part of the, the people of God because obedience and true spirituality was what circumcision was designed to point towards. So what Paul is doing here is helping us to understand that there is an internal element of circumcision. And this would not have been a new idea. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses says that the people are to circumcise their hearts. Jeremiah 4 describes the problem of Israel and they won't listen because they have uncircumcised ears. So circumcision was never intended to be an external only issue. But like what happens so often with us human beings when we take up religious practices is we tend to take the symbols and make them the ultimate status mark. And what Paul is saying is that outward actions alone avail nothing. The Jews who failed to understand true circumcision were those who failed to understand what it was that God really was intending for the people of Israel in the first place. And what's more, by their lack of obedience, were actually causing the name of God to be blasphemed. So what Paul is looking for is a circumcision of the heart. In other words, he wants to take our spiritual status symbols and say, can you just put those away for a moment? And let me just ask you, what's really going on in the inside? Are you a true Jew? That's what he wants. You can't just say, I was raised in this home, I'm part of the Jewish heritage. Are you, are you real? That's what Paul is driving towards. And then we see this in his three conclusions that are found in verses 28 and 29. And these conclusions relate not only to the problem of Jews who are looking down their noses at Gentiles, but it also relates to us today. These are conclusions that we need to heed, we need to listen to. Spiritually minded people tend towards this status symbol identification. And true spirituality is not connected with status symbol mentality. So three conclusions. Here's the first one, and that is this. Paul identifies that true spirituality is not external-focused living. Verse 28 is a very important reminder that being a part of God's people is not merely external orientation. Verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
The text tells us that they were Jews who were biologically and physically and ethnically Jewish, but they weren't Jewish. And there were Gentiles who were not Jewish by virtue of their ethnicity or their family heritage, who were more Jewish than people who were physiologically Jewish. What Paul's going after here is our tendency as human beings to base our present reality on our pedigree, our heritage, our religious activities. What Paul says here, those things have are no guarantee of true spirituality. I hope you know, and you can sense this, this is not just a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. This is a problem for, for anyone who gets involved in spiritual pursuits. We have this tendency to reduce spirituality to a group or a listing of things that we do. And don't get me wrong, what we do matters, but the problem is, is we take those things and we make those things as the badges of whether or not we're real. For instance, ask someone if they're a Christian and you might hear some of the following answers. Are you a Christian? Sure I am. I grew up in the church. I was baptized at age 13. I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. I was raised in a Christian home. I read my Bible every single day. I tithe on everything that I make. And every single one of those things, those things aren't bad. Those things are gloriously good. Unless that becomes the sum total or the marker of what you believe true spirituality really is. This is really important if you're a a second-generation Christian, you grew up in a Christian home, or if you're a third or a fourth generation, or if you're a, a teenager or a young person, you've had the great benefit of being in a church or in Sunday school or a, a Christian home or a school environment all of your life. There, there's a real blessing to that, but there's also a huge danger to that, and that you can assume that just because you're in the building or just because you're around the content of truth that you have possessed the truth and the truth is your own. Let me illustrate this for you. Imagine if on my way out of the sanctuary, if one of you were to come up to me and say, Hey, Mark, how's your marriage? And I were to say, Good, we're still living together. You might walk away going, Good, I think, right? That's Okay, that's a good start, right? True spirituality has to be more than being in the right place, being born in the right family, and doing the right things. It can't just be a bunch of externals. And so one of the things I want you to think about with me this morning is this. So as it relates to spirituality, what is just merely external, and what really is both external that comes from the inside? Here's the second thing. The second thing is, more positive, that Paul talks about heart-based obedience. Verse 29, For, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of, the next three things are really important, of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the letter. 
So he gives a positive angle on if it's not supposed to be externally focused living, then what is it? And the answer is, is it's to be heart-based obedience. It's supposed to be inward, supposed to be based upon the heart and driven by the spirit. And throughout the book of Romans, Paul is going to do this. There's no hope in yourself. You can't have a righteousness on your own. You need God to give it to you. And when he gives it to you, he produces in you the thing that you'd never be able to produce on your own, which is inward, heart-based, spirit-born obedience that springs not because you have to, but because you want to. That God changes the fundamental desires of your heart and he orients you towards righteousness. Not perfectly, but fundamentally you have been altered. As parents, we have to make this adjustment. I've had to make this adjustment and it hasn't been easy. This, this last week marked the sixth year of being voted and brought to this uh, congregation. I remember so well the congregational meeting that we had on February 17th, 2008, and um, there's no room in the sanctuary. I sat on the piano bench with Lori Ellinger while the vote was being read. My kids were, were really little then, they grew really fast here, and they moved from um, preteen to teens. And can I be honest with you? I, I'm a much more adept parent for younger children than I am teenagers. Can I get a witness when that one? Anybody else? <laughs> My wife, she's just good across the board. She's just a rock star from, from, from birth to teenage world. Me, yeah, not so much. So, so when I came to College Park, I was sensing that I was bumping up against this thing. And so one of the joys of being here is being able to raise my kids in an environment, teenage years, but we talk about the heart. And, and one of the things that I did was I actually took a class on, on parenting teenagers. I was like, I gotta, I gotta figure this thing out. And, and, and one of the things that came out of that class was, was how to be able to speak to the heart. Because when you're, when you're parenting young little kids, you're just interested in obedience and compliance. But when they get to teenage world, they start asking annoying, really good questions. Right? And, and they start thinking for themselves, which is like scary. Don't think, just do what I tell, tell you to do, right? And, 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 and then they start asking other questions, and so you gotta speak to the heart and figure out how do you speak that language and get into there and set relationship in the context and all those things. And, and you know what I want from my kids more than anything else in the world? I don't want them live, living by a list of rules. That won't last. What I want is for the heart of their hearts to be motivated and empowered by the beauty of the gospel and to have people around them who speak truth into their hearts. But the fact of the matter is, is that our natural default is we like our list, we like our rules, but that won't work. Grandmas and grandpas, you get the grandkids to come back, don't just give them a bunch of rules. Your grandparents, you don't have to have rules, right? No. You should have rules. Some rules. Some rules. A few, okay? But when you have opportunity to have conversation with those grandkids, you've got to speak the truth of God's word into their souls. You have to be able to help them understand what is heart-based obedience. Not just obey because mom and dad say, but obey because it's the right thing to do. And out of the spirit, out of the heart comes a new orientation for obedience. You see, as a church, this is what we need. This is what we long for. This is what the gospel does. The true spirituality is heart-based obedience. And then here's the third thing. That true spirituality involves gospel-centered passion. Look at the last part of verse 29. His praise is not from man, but from God. What a great way to summarize what Paul is saying here. 
It's simple, but it's transforming. His praise is not from man, but from God. Hypocritical living exchanges the praise of men and receives the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Hypocritical living is being fine with people thinking you're godly when God knows you're not. Hypocritical living is fine with you talking ahead of where you really live. But true spirituality and true obedience have the praise of God as the central motivating factor of a person's life. It says his praise is from man, is not from man, but from God. It means they want to please him and honor him and love him with all the heart, all the mind, all the soul, and all the strength that they have. That true obedience is focused on a passion to make God the central reality of one's life. So, church, true spirituality is not just external. It's heart-based. It relates to the Spirit. And it makes God your treasure. So, can I just ask you today, as we close Romans 2, how, how is it, seriously, how is it with your soul today? I'm so glad you're here. Can I be honest? But being here is it's nothing. Spend time in the Word this week? Great. But did it reach your soul? You spend time in prayer? But how is your soul? That's the question. And what I want you thinking with me about today is what is true spirituality really about? It's not just these external things. We, we're very good, us human beings, at finding a list. Oh, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. Meanwhile, we are adrift spiritually. And I just want you asking the question, along with myself, which is why Romans 2 is such a hard text for me personally, is just to ask ourselves, how is it really with your soul? Is it vibrant? Love in Jesus? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, or has Christianity just begun to slip back into this rote? I don't check the boxes, but I got a list, and as long as I do this, I'm okay. When the reality is, that's not how God ever designed Christianity to be. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you just take a moment? God sees our souls. He he knows right now what's happening inside of your heart. And could you just answer that question before God? How is it with my soul today, Lord? And if your soul's not in a great place, would maybe you just tell the Lord that? He knows. Acknowledge sort of the, the rote manufactured spiritual life that has taken hold of your life. You may be here today and you just, your soul as you think about it is far from God and today needs to be a day where you decide, look, I need to fix what's wrong with my soul by trying to figure out what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. As Eric said earlier in the service, if you are sitting right next to Jesus, and could have a conversation with him, what is it that you would say today about your own soul? Would you sing this with me? Turn your eyes upon Jesus.
Look full in His wonderful face And the things of earth will grow strangely dim In the light of His glory and grace. Lord, you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. And thank you that you can help us by the Spirit today to be reminded about the danger of spiritual status symbols. Help us to be a people who are passionate followers of yours. No fakes, no shams, no hypocrisy. Lord, reel before you. Oh, Lord, make us, oh, Lord, make us that kind of people. Help people today whose hearts are weary and dry. Fill them even now with hope that you can bring them out of a spiritual depression into a season of newness and vitality. So, Holy Spirit, help us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here who'd love to be able to pray with you if there's something going on in your life today, guys. So um, glad you've come. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.